a week after RT dropped one of their dairy correspondents, we've got two this weekend, Jordan Cain, GL columnist, and Paul McFlynn, ex-dairy player. Welcome to Take Your Points. This week we're going to talk about the All-Ireland Final. Dublin won it, five in a row, uh, made history. And I wanted to get your thoughts, Jared, because last week's, in last week's Gaelic Life, you said that the key that Kerry had to do was to play Tommy Walsh. That was what they had to do to stand up to Dublin. And it worked for a period? Well, on the replay, I found it strange that they held him as long as they did. And then whenever he did eventually come on, a lot of the ball that he received, Tommy was running out towards the Hogan stand or running out towards the Cusick stand, running away from goal, facing towards the sideline when he picked up the ball as opposed to the first 10 minutes of the game, where Kerry had some sort of aerial bombardment on the Dublin, atta- the Dublin defence, kicked in three, maybe four high balls, uh, between Johnny Cooper and Cluxton, they were maybe sweeping them up, and if you look at the first three, Dublin end up scoring not three out of counter-attacks from them, and that's maybe more the type of ball that Tommy would have suited, as opposed to running out towards the Cusick stand with his back to goal, or even the ball that they played a lot against, and Tyrone and the drawn final where they talked about his experience in Aussie Rules, they talked about taking the lead, where he came out around the D and he was there ready for a bouncing ball on the his chest, which he's very comfortable in taking. None of that transpired, but I think holding them to the 55th minute, whenever they were three or four down at that stage, and Dublin having 15 men this time made a bit of a difference as opposed to bringing them on in the 53rd or 54th minute in the drawn game when, when they had an extra man. At any stage, did you think Dublin weren't going to win the match? I'll be honest, no. Obviously, the game turned when Merchant scored the goal 10 seconds in the second half. I think as equally important was on the restart, Dublin kicked the point. You know, if you're involved in football teams, you always say if a team scores a goal, you try and get the score because it makes it a two point swing instead of a four point swing. Dublin scored a point in the restart and they were four points up within a minute and 20 seconds. And after that, with the 15 men, they're always likely to control the game, and I, th- I think they controlled it pretty comfortably at that point. What impressed you, Paul, about Dublin uh, on Saturday? Well, I suppose just the forward play. It was well headed in the, in the first game that O'Callaghan and Mannion and uh, Kieran Kilkenny were sort of held and held well in those games. And anyone got into the replay was saying, look, if these guys click, you can only see one winner. And that did transpire. I think those three kicked four points each from play. And Dean Rock, who was quiet in comparison to the previous day, but he still kicked nod two and, and swung over that 45 at the end. So it was their forward play. It's, and at the beginning, it was a great first half to, to witness it 10 all as a spectator. Watching that, it was phenomenal. You'd have been looking at any youngster to look at that and say, look, this is how you play football. This is how you, you want to inspire someone to play football. But the longer the game went on and you're... And I spoke about uh, spoke about in all the analysts were talking about the fact that it was sort of like attack, attack, attack both sides. With Dublin's conditioning, you, you can only do that for so long. And I do think Kerry tired as well to an extent. So when Jared was making the point there about Tommy Walsh coming in, I think the timing of it just was wrong. And these things work for you. One day the game takes on a different complexion the second day, and it just it just just got away from them at that particular point. You know, it's odd that they tired, but Kerry will be regarded as younger of the two teams. But it's the conditioning. You look at the physique, and I suppose everybody's been well hated. But you looked at that, there was a photo floating around, I think, on Twitter of Conor Callahan, and someone saying, compare him to when he was eating Cocoa Pops to porridge. And the difference in him in two years is just phenomenal, really. When you look at him, his ability to win his own ball, but that burst of pace that he has, that explosive 
pace and power that he has. And if you watch him, he gets the big hand up. There's always a hand goes up to give him that yard or two. And what also makes him extremely difficult then is the fact that he's two-footed. If you look at Kilkenny and him and Clifford, they're all two-footed. So players always back off them because they don't know. Whereas if you've got a forward and he's one-footed, you have a fair idea what way he's going to move. What, if you've done your homework and watched him in video, you can push him down a particular avenue. Whereas with those guys, it, it's different. So that conditioning that they have and that relentless work that they've done over X number of years, I think Kerry will eventually get there. And they are catching them up in that conditioning stakes. But youth counts for a lot. But the, the conditioning of those Dublin fellas is frightening. Oh, you just look at Kerry Kenny in that interview when he put up his fist to say we're going to party. I mean... It's scary. He's a big lad. <laughs> yeah. He's a big lad. Yeah. He knows how to his breakfast. What can Ulster teams do though? How far behind is it, are everybody else to those two? Both from the outside looking in, you would have to say a, a fair distance. There's been a lot of talk obviously about the finance that's thrown at Dublin and all the rest. And whilst the finance doesn't do everything for you, I still think to cope in the modern era and in the game, you need access to X number of pounds. And I think. I was chatting with Kieran McGinney there not so long ago and he was talking about the fact about the work he was doing with Armagh and he was talking about the financial input that you need and, and, and he's saying that in Ulster teams he says let's be fair he says it's going to come around for Ulster teams now maybe once every 10 years there's a chance he says in the early 90s it was there you had a chance all the time so I think to actually close the gap the Ulster teams have to invest even more if that's possible if it's out there, and I do think I think that gap is appearing. We thought perhaps you would close the gap, but it would appear with Dublin and Kerry. I think at the minute they're definitely the two teams that are that are way ahead of everybody else. Jared, uh, you would, would you agree in that analysis? Investments what needed, and can that bring Ulster teams closer? In terms of Ulster teams, as Paul said, I don't know what any of them. As I said, it might come around a one one every ten year cycle. Like Tron have been now in four semi-finals in five years. And to me, they don't look any closer to one than all Ireland. Donegal have won the last two Ulsters, and they've blazed through Ulster, and, and you're watching them saying, these are the team to beat Dublin, and then they haven't got the Super 8s in both the years. Different reasons, I know they had different injuries with McBrady one year, and Owen Van Geller this year. But if one of the other teams gets them injuries, they're surely able to absorb it and move on, either change the way they play or bring someone else in. But I don't think any of the Ulster teams will be able to close the gap anytime soon. Now they can invest all the money and all the Ulster teams will get better as a result and they'll bring Ulster football onwards. I think that's what Bantley's obviously done in Monaghan. Whenever you see the backroom team he's assembled and he's made it quite clear that that's what he's trying to do. But in terms of getting closer to probably Kerry and Dublin, I think that they're all a fair way off. I think Mayo's maybe sort of on the way down. I sort of listened to some of their players talking. You know, Chris Barrett talked there one day about coming home after 1am trains and mail and stuff. Dublin don't have that, you know, that disadvantage, even geographically, no matter about the finances. Players are in and out the train in a couple of hours, Don Dusted, you know. And even, even we things like that, over the course of a year, you add in the 20 hours in the car you're spending a week, by 20 weeks it's 400 hours just, and it's probably a lot more than that. That's what counties like Dublin aren't absorbing. So with all that in mind, and the news this week that the restructure in the GA, the Tier 2 system is going to go forward at, at Congress, they're going to vote on it, uh, where they'll have the two, the provincial winners will get through into the qualifiers, but the all the Division 3 and 4 teams will play a Tier 2 competition. How does that help 
Ulster teams and everybody else, will, will it help them? I don't think it does, to be honest. Uh, obviously, the league in the earliest part of the season is a priority for most teams, and the likes of Derry and Down are in the same league, so they'll be aiming their league to get up, and, and Division 4, Antrim will be. If Antrim lose their first two league games, especially if they're against the teams that they're going to be competing against to get up out of Division 4, that's their league over nearly. So games 3 through to 7 or 8, they're just sort of riding it out until they come to an Austria Championship draw. The luck of the draw this year put them against Tyrone. So really, what was Antrim's season to play for after they beaten the first two league games? And if it's now a chance of going into what is a second tier, I think it holds a lot of unknowns just for any team in it. I know that the GA probably are coming at it with good intentions and John Horne said from day one his mandate was make it more competitive across the board, bring in a second tier, but people are so split on it. I spoke to Lenny Harbison and he's been on record in the paper saying we have to be playing tier two and yet I've yet to read Kevin O'Boyle, Patrick McBride and there's another one of Antrim players saying that they wouldn't play in a tier two. So if you've a manager of one team saying it, but the players of the same team are saying different, you know, it's causing a lot of division even within that camp. So I don't know whether a player would say, well, I'm not giving up my next five, six, seven months to play in a tier two. And it might, I, I, I think it definitely will help the drop off in terms of players going to America in the summer. You'll see it on the rise again. Mm-hmm. Paul, I sat in this room with uh, Shane Elliott, our hurling columnist, and Kyle Carville, our, uh, the other columnist um, from RMA, both have said they can't see why footballers continue to want to play in the All-Ireland Series when hurling are happily playing in, in a t- tiered system, three and four tiers. You, do, do you, you don't agree, I presume you don't agree with a, a tier two system, or do you? No, I don't. But look, it, it is difficult because you, you hear different opinions out there. And when you retire now, it's different. But had I, when I was still playing for Derry, would you have wanted to play in tier two? No way. And I see Jared's point. You're looking, and because the clubs as well, you've got a lot of players there who are thinking about the, to themselves, we might win a club championship this year and they don't like the prospect of playing in a tier two, they're going to invest their efforts in with the club and not put them fully in behind the county when the whole purpose of a tier two is to make them develop and improve to get up to that level. So it may not work for certain counties, but you do have certain managers in certain counties, particularly in Division 4, saying that it's needed because they go into provincial championship, they take a hammer, they maybe go into the qualifiers and they end up meeting a strong team who's exited at the first round of provincial championship uh, and they take another hammer, and so it's not great for confidence levels. But ask any player, and I suppose with these new proposals, they still get a chance to play in the provincial championship. But a lot of players, that dream's still there of, of the holy grail. And whilst we know for a lot of them it's unrealistic, they still want that opportunity. And we have seen over the years counties make great progress in the qualifiers who have maybe perhaps punched above their weight. And what that has done for football in those counties, inspiring youth, and giving those counties a real lift. And I don't know if that same lift can be generated through a, a Tier 2 competition. But I suppose having an Ulster Championship there that you can play in still helps you. Yeah, well, I think still you've, you've got that chance of uh, playing in Provincial. So the, the Provincial is still there, but as, as Jared alluded to earlier on, so if Derry, for example, don't make the Ulster final under the new rules, well, then they can't go forward in the All-Ireland Series. And I think it my own county, but... And to, to see them in Division 3, you think that they're better than that and hopefully they will get out of Division 3. But, and for Down as well. Uh, so I think for those fellas, they would still have aspirations of competing and getting a run in the qualifiers. And they would see 
perhaps are running the qualifiers uh, and in terms of development being of more use to them down the road than competing in what they would deem to be a lesser competition. What have you thought of the Super 8s? Yeah. Um, what's your opinion on that system? To be honest, I've liked the Super 8s. I, I was a bit um, wary about it when it was first introduced, but I think it's went fairly well. Okay, with a few dead rubbers, but I think under the new rules, they're going to avoid that. And when you're, everybody was looking forward this year to watching Donegal and, and Mayo, and that did mean something in that game. Now, the flip side of that was the Tyrone and Dublin a fiasco, really, up in Oma. But if you're managing any of those teams, you'd be doing what you're thinking down the line at that stage and you can afford to think down the line. So when it got to the, compare those two games, everybody was looking forward to, to Mayo and Donegal and the fact that Donegal hadn't lost yet and the Super not one loss put them out. Mm -hmm. So that was a great game to look forward to, but I think the new structures will help that and avoid those dead rubbers. When you were a player, how would you have taken playing a championship which still had a back door and a dropout, you know, a safety net? Yeah, well, I played in the qualifiers uh, uh, for years, and I suppose we, we were <laughs> the kings of qualifiers <laughs> at one stage. Uh, and probably uh, during our period, uh, Jared was coming in, and I was, we played together for a few years, and he went on to play for X number. Um, but you didn't like playing in the qualifiers. For a start, you wanted to, to win the provincial championship. But all too often for us, unfortunately, we, we never got there. And we did have, we had a great record in the qualifiers and played in, well I played in three All-Ireland semi-finals but two of them are through the back door route and the momentum that it gives you, the confidence that it gives you in playing those games and winning and we liked it, whilst we'd like to have been going through the, the front door, I still think it's great and it gives you a chance to, to progress. So a run of games does help, the more games you yeah. can play at that level the better, Jordan? Yeah. I just think it matters at what stage of development your team's at too, you know, uh, for the likes of Throne, who have an abundance of players, Throne have maybe 26, 27 players, and there's not a lot in there, number 16 to number 23, 24, and they can use the qualifiers to bring all them boys on. Back in there, you know, whenever we were starting out, Mickey Moore came in in 03, and then he brought in a lot of young fellas, and it probably helped that team because we got in a run in 04 through the semi-final that we played six games, and we went to everywhere in the country, and. Unfortunately, Trone beat us in the first round. It wasn't what we aimed for, but after that, we probably got a bit of luck at the draw earlier on, but we had to work our way through it. And, work, and we were playing teams with momentum. We quite began a Westmeath team managed by Polly O'Shea, who had come through Leinster and won their first Leinster in years. And uh, we had beat a Cavan team that had been managed by Eamon Coleman, who was doing well with them. We beat a Wexford team who had Matty Ford, who kicked 210 the day before again awfully. All these teams were, were coming with momentum, but so were we. And I think the stage our team was at probably helped the development of a lot of them players a lot. So, you know, the back door definitely does have its benefits in that. This year's championship at the replay there, we lost some, well, RT decided not to have Joe Bradley on the show, um, which caused a lot of controversy as he's a columnist of ours. What did you take of that? Do you think it's a mistake to lose Joe Bradley? We don't know at the moment. He's still under contract with them and he may be back next year, but the word is that he probably won't be. Do you think they're going to lose, they lose out not having Joe? I think they probably will. It just depends on what angle you watch a game for. So uh, now that I'm sort of coming to the end of my career and I've been involved with teams more on a different aspect, looking at games, I would look at a game and I would sit in the first half or the second half and I'm sitting thinking, right, who's matched up who, what way the kickouts going, uh, can you see a style of play, that sort of way and people say that's what we look for in analysis. But I think if you look at 80% of Irish households 
throughout Ireland that watch RTE, they're not sitting down to see that. They're just sitting down to maybe hear one or two sound bites about it, but I would guarantee you most of them, especially people of an older generation, and I'm talking like, probably not that old, are sitting down to see on what Joe saying today. And I think RTE will lose out from that basis. Uh, obviously, Declan Bennett's come in and Joe had a piece there a few foot three weeks ago about Declan not being a pushover and why should he be? I don't know whether it was him made the call or someone else, but I don't think by not having Joe there that their analysis suddenly goes from there to here. Uh, I know Stephen Rochford was in the other day and Stephen's a, Stephen's a good analyst, but I don't know that it makes Pat's plan any better of an analyst not having Joe there or Colin or anybody else. And I suppose they're having to trade that off against... Joe might come up with some comments now and again and it's led to him having to contact people after the game, issuing apologies, and maybe it was just one apology too many for them, I think. We're Irish, we love the rye, we love people winding up. Paul, what's your thoughts? You know him well. I mean, listen, I had a lot of time for Joe, and I suppose he's Marmite for some people, you know, you either love him or hate him, but I think, and and Jared's right, when I would tune into the Sunday game there, and and I loved the halftime, it was entertaining. And whilst at times he comes across as, you know, he's not listening to others or he's, he's ramming his opinion down people's throats. Uh, but a lot of the time he just says it as it is. And, and sometimes people like that honesty. And whilst Jared has alluded to it, the times he's had to issue the odd apology, but he was man enough to issue those apologies as well. There's others who may just have done that. I think the entertainment value, I think RTE, I mean, RTE is not going to fold because Joe Brawley's not there. But I still think uh, RTE are better off with him there. And I think in the long run, I think you might see him back. I'm just not sure. You've seen the last of him, maybe a sabbatical of some uh, sort. But I think in the long and look, when he does analyse football, there's no one better. And you read some of his articles and bits and pieces, he is a good analyst. People would say sometimes he's got a little bit too personal at times, but that's just Joe. He's always been like that. He just says what he thinks. Uh, sentiment doesn't come into it. He is what he is, you know, he just he just doesn't hold it back. And people like that, it's raw, it's off the cuff sometimes. I like that. Some people just mightn't like it, they, f- they feel it's too personal. But he is that type of character. I mean, he's given us kidney one day and, and he's, he's one of these guys that just, he, he will do things that other people won't do in a, in a, in a sort of, say, a charitable sense as well. So he, there's lots of good things about Joe Brawley. And I think for Joe... What Joe doesn't understand is that because of his mentality, how people take things so personally, because he doesn't. But I was having a conversation with him and I said, no, but that's, people do. Joe, they're a lot more sensitive. He just can't get over this because he's not sensitive. He talked to people one day back in about 05 or 06 with me, how I was a, I love the young fella, but I'm just not cut out for counting football. He says, he described, <laughs> described me as a dog chasing a car wheel. And that if I got it, I wouldn't know what to do with the ball. That's what he said. And like, I was always quite confident in the ball and I was happy with the way I was playing but I met him three weeks after it and he was as charming and as nice and we were down the city centre having lunch and I had forgot completely about it whereas when I read it I was seething and I was like and like my mother wanted to give him a piece of her mind oh, yeah. that sort of thing <laughs> I met him three weeks later and it was just a bit of laugh and joke uh, you know and that's what Joe's like and I think more so that this has come to light I think you realise do maybe people take if you're taking Joe too seriously, and that's not to say he's there to be laughed at or class clown, but if you take him too much to heart, you're probably taking him the wrong way, you know. And I think maybe in society, there's a lot worse things going on than what Joe Brawley says in the Sunday game at halftime, really. You know, some of the stuff we see on our TVs that, you know, 
that's going on as as Joe said himself last week uh, it's just a game of football you know it's not world war mm. and I think he's right to pull it across like that if we lose Joe Burley on on the uh, Sunday game, then we don't have an Ulster voice, or uh, other than Sean Cavanaugh, would that be the he'd be the only other one? Would that be correct? Well, what, unless they go to replace him, I know. Like towards the end of the year, they bring in maybe a player like Michael Murphy or Conrad Maas, but these boys will be playing for another two, three, four years. So other than Sean Cavanaugh, there probably is no Ulster voice, and Sean doesn't seem to do any live games himself. He does the evening games, so uh, I think you need that sort of balance within the studio as well. So if you were to say to RT how, how if you were going to say, I'm Jordan Kane, I want to get on, what would you? Do you think that, that they need more of an Ulster voice on this one? I think they do. I think, well, again, people have been sensitive. I think way back when they were describing Ulster football, the defensive system that I um, suppose Jim McGuinness was maybe brought in uh, for 2011, but even prior to that, when Tyrone adopted quite a defensive system that time against Kerry, when they were swarming the Kerry players in the 03 semi-final, uh, they would talk that Armand maybe started it the year before, that there was this move towards more defensive style of play, how Kerry were struggling around that time to, 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 knock, uh, to beat them and navigate their way through. And for a lot of time, Ulster football did take a lot of stick, and people were quite defensive and, and, and I think Joe was a voice of reason on there sometimes and he, he did he did stand up for it on occasions when Spillane and these boys would have been talking and probably it was the same rhetoric all the time without perhaps that analysis so I think that Ulster voice is important mm -hmm. and was why Sean Cavanaugh is there but he wouldn't be there on live TV unless they make they make some changes around that mm -hmm. so it will be a loss in that regard and John might not defend Derry if we ever get there well, I, I wouldn't think it. <laughs> I wouldn't think it. <laughs> <laughs> Although Joe didn't rent very much either. The other controversial issue this week uh, or last week was um, uh, we were contacted on Twitter about um, Andun not playing in the McGeehan Cup. Um, Andun's the amalgamated team that won the Hurling Hurling, Senior Hurling competition last year and aren't being allowed to play in, in the competition. So some in the ARDS feel that they are being unfairly treated because... Um, because uh, they won and they were successful. Um, you have taught in Balmina and Jordan, we've, we've, we've both went through the school system, through Mara. Uh, how serious an issue do you think this is? Do you think it's, how important is it that they have an amalgamated team there? How, or where do you see the problems there? Well, look, you can understand it from the players that are part of that amalgamation. They get, last year they were exposed to a higher level of hurling. They had success. But the flip side of it is, I think when they beat Cross and Passion, was it a, a, in a final? So, and I did have a conversation with Joe Cassidy about this actually, and and having been involved in myself, I I taught in St Louis Ballerina for twelve years, and you were trying to sort of make breakthroughs. Uh, I, I was at B level in McLaren, and you were trying to 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 make a, a breakthrough with certain teams, and it's very difficult for teams to make a breakthrough when you're pulling together uh, the top players from schools to come in, and they be they're a real force. And the Cross and Passion is one of the best. Uh, they went down and they won a, an All-Ireland uh, B as well. So they're one of the top uh, schools, hurling schools in Ireland, really, to an extent. And they couldn't topple them. And Joe would sort of say to me, when he gets his first years in, you know, he's looking at his first years, and it'll be the same when you were at St. Pat's, when you went in as a first year. And the, those boys that won McCrory stepped in stage. You said, I want to be there. And you were one of those boys who made it. So... It's, it's a real inspiring and motivating factor for boys in schools. And extracurricular sport is also a real pull for schools now. 
because yes, the academics say the thing's important, but parents are very much into now the holistic development of children and getting out of it as much as they can. It's those extras that people now realise, employers now realise and parents realise that those are the extras that are going to get them on in life, not just the results. So when Joe said to me, look, those first years came in, that's what they were looking at was we want to win a McGeehan, we want to get there. They get through and he said if that Undoon team hadn't been there, they would have won it. You know, and the other schools would have would have agreed. So I just, to be honest with you, I wouldn't be in favour of amalgamating teams. And, and, and they always said it was you had that Cahar Derry team as well. We're playing in the McLaren this year. And look, there'll be people watching this saying, that's all well and good, but if you're a child at a particular school and the hurling of the football is not just as strong as it could be and they're a real standout player. Like, but I think, look, schools football is great. But look, if you're at a club, you're getting a lot of football outside of school. All right. It is extracurricular. It's brilliant to be playing it. But if you happen to go to a school and it's not there, that's just part and parcel of it. So I think the amalgamated teams, it does really take away an effect. And whilst that Cahardari team didn't win it, but they obviously got to a final and knocked out other teams that would have loved that big day out. And I actually spoke to one of the managers of that team. And we had a balanced conversation about it, Mickey McCullough, who was involved with Lumen Christie. And I says, look, but if you won that competition, where does that cup go? There's three schools involved. Mm. The whole idea of your trophy cabinet and having it up there and kids and parents coming in and looking at it and getting photographs of it, where does it go? Does it go to the school that had the most on the team? You know, so I just, I just wouldn't be in fear of it personally. Jared, in the last episode, Patrick Gallagher of Mantrum said that schools football is, or schools competitions are better for development players than development squads in the county. He says that he was only ever able to play McLaren Cup, but if, if Belfast or Antrim had an A-level school, they would be a lot stronger than they are now. Uh, and, and if you look at Derry, a lot of Derry success came out of Mahara. Where would you, would you agree with Patrick on that one or, or not? There's probably a balance in that now that development squads weren't back in my time or Paul's time or long before that, whenever the school was the only nursery outside of the club. Now development squads are very much, I think, day under 15 or 16 will be starting again for next year in two or three weeks' time. Now it's only a matter of getting together. This is what you what 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 we want you doing over the winter. But I think development squads do have their part to play. Uh, with Patrick's example in Antrim, I think Antrim themselves need maybe need a school playing the McCrory Cup. I know St Mary's Belfast were close to it a time or two, but then as Paul says, if you took two or three of schools in Belfast club them together and put them in McCrory is that really fair that they're playing against teams that aren't getting that same pull of players in terms of the amalgamations I would agree with them at club level where your club doesn't have numbers and and that reason it's about participation it's not about success and our, our club went through it in Glenallan about 10 years ago our minors amalgamated with Belair who are also in the parish and they amalgamated for two or three years wherever it suited both clubs as well and then one or two years down the line, we had enough players of our own. And unfortunately for Blair, they didn't. But we had to be selfish to make the call. We can't amalgamate, we can't amalgamate now because if we do, we're leaving eight of our own players on the bench whenever we can field. And uh, we sort of had to be selfish in that regard. But if a school's doing it, I think a school should only do it if they can't get numbers out. Now, if them schools and down that amalgamate together are fit to field separately, but they have to field a a competition down, then so be it. But I think the amalgamation should only be in place 
for participation and not for driving on success in that way. Okay, okay. So you be for amalgamations at cl a club level to a certain extent? Well, even at schools level, if they didn't have the numbers, mm -hmm. which is why they have it at club level. And I think you'll probably see it more in rural clubs as the years go down the line. Our under-16s this year played against two teams who were, were amalgamations, and I think that'll become all the more common, you know, especially with rural rural air and the way it's going, you know, and people moving away into the cities and that sort of thing. But they only done it out, out of necessity. They didn't want it to make themselves into some super force that's going to win the under-16 championship. They don't because they want to give 15 fellas football. Mm -hmm. it's, I'm just looking at it from a school perspective, and, and I think schools can be a great uh, ground, but I would also be a believer at schools level to play at your own level. Is, is important uh, at a school's level. Because I look at St. Pat's, for example, you have 1,300 kids, yeah. right? My young lad just started there in first year, and hopefully the other boys will go there. But you think of a kid who's going in there, and they're maybe coming from a club, and they've great feeder clubs coming in, and they're maybe one of the sort of better players. When they enter at Mahara, you know, they may make that yeah. A team, you know. And it's actually, I'm sure you, you saw, but you were one of those guys that did. You came through, you were one of the star men. But there have been guys there that maybe had aspirations and ambitions of making those teams and didn't, and maybe fell back a little, the confidence, the, the dent in their confidence, and maybe they actually went through Maharan didn't play didn't any play school football. football. Uh, it happens. Whereas you send them to a smaller school, I'm just thinking the context of where we were, maybe St. Collins, Draperstown, they wouldn't have the same numbers where Kieran Mina uh, teaches there. And maybe 450 kids. So the chances of playing, right, much higher. And making that team and actually getting exposed and regular football at your level for five years. So to me, that's a better platform for development than maybe going to one of the real top schools. But because the standard's so high, and you could be a great player and still not make those teams, and actually you don't play any school football. I'm sure even if you remember in your time, like I have only seen clippings of it, the St. Pius's team that... Uh, Brian McIver took. Yeah. He was just probably working with anyone at that age that wanted to play football nearly. Probably the panel of 35, 36. Whereas in bigger schools like St. Pat's Mahara, maybe the convent, uh, definitely in some of the bigger trunes, was they're having the cut fellas. We're having the name squad. And unfortunately, then if, if there is a B competition that's run off, but there might be boys get the chance where probably in St. Collins, Town, their first year team is look, anybody who wants to come and play football come and get involved in schools football, get involved in the extracurricular side of it. And it's probably the same, I know, in St. Pat's and Given. I know where uh, Paddy Bradley teaches in uh, the new school, St. Connors, it's the same. If you want to play football, you're invited along, you'll get the chance in that sort of way. Whereas a bigger school, you have to make the squad first then get a chance to play it, which maybe in some respects isn't fair. But, but I suppose the bottom line is any school's football is good for clubs. It is. Yep. So they're playing regular. And, and I mean, the example would spring to my mind, and I might be totally, I don't think I'm wrong on this, but I think Kevin McCloy played very little very football little. at St. Pat's Mahara. And he emerged, ended up getting an all star. So, you know, it probably was a case that he was a late developer to an extent. And because of the standard that was at Mahara, there's boys who go to Mahara, they would walk in the other school team, but they look at the pal that's there. The commitment levels that are that are there as well, and they end up thinking, well, that's not for me. So they maybe go spend seven years in some paths just playing for their club, and actually there'd be a few Slock Neil boys that were in that all Ireland, the Ulster, sorry, the Ulster club, one of the teams that played. I because I was chatting to a couple of the teachers and they were talking about the success of Slock Neil, and somebody was saying to me, 
And actually, he named two or three. You know, he didn't play McCrory. And I mind saying, but McCrory's not the be-all and end-all. doesn't mean to say. But I says, you've also got to understand the context. You're in St. Patrick's Mahara. You know, one of the kingpins of, of Ulster College's football. And probably he was a late developer. Was he smaller then? You know, all the, the other factors come into it. Polly Casty didn't play much football at Mahara. And if you look at him now, Sammy didn't either. And I, I won a McCrory and a Hogan in 03. We had a panel of 34. It wasn't one Stanley Hill person on it. And Stanley Hill would be a big feeder area for, for some pats. You know, and they had plenty of footballers, but they had one footballer and out of the 35 on it. Which was strange when you think back on it. Well, you talked about Potty Casty there and Sammy, who both are current county panellists. Yeah. So, you know, so in terms of did, did the school of football develop them, you would say not, because they, they didn't play much. It was the fact that their club and they stuck at it with their club and they were a lit developer. So I think any school's football at your level, you can improve and develop if you apply yourself. So this idea of coming together for greater success uh, in terms of balancing it with with success and development, I still think you're better playing at your, your own school and at your own level. Okay. I think we'll leave it there. That was, we got into a lot of different points there. <laughs> I think we've covered plenty. Um, but Paul, thanks for coming in. Appreciate no it. Problem. Thank you. Jared, thanks for coming as well. No worries. Yeah.